This evening, I'm here to share my story with you. It is my childhood experiences during World War II in the concentration camps. I will tell you about our liberation and how we finally started our lives anew in our blessed United States of America. Mine is a story that Anne Frank might have told had she survived. And as most of you know, I think all of you know, Anne Frank was a young Jewish girl who died along with most of her family in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. This is also a story that conveys a message of perseverance, determination, faith, and above all hope. After the presentation, time permitting, I will be pleased to answer some of your questions. Life in the early 1930s in Germany was very much for my family as it is here for most of you today. Never did we think that the anti-Semitic incidents there would ever lead to very much. My father was in a successful shoe business in a small town. My parents, two-year-older brother and I, lived comfortably with my grandparents above the shoe store. Life for Jews was made increasingly more difficult, and in 1935, the Nuremberg Laws were formulated and enforced. The following are just some of the many restrictions imposed on the Jews in Germany. Jews were not allowed into theaters, into parks, or into swimming pools. All public schools were closed to Jewish children. Then there was the evening curfew, for the Jews, Jews were only allowed to shop during specific hours of the day, and non-Jews were not allowed to shop in Jewish-owned stores. Non-Jews were just not allowed to associate with Jewish people. And then a big letter J for Jew was stamped on ID cards and on passports. These restrictions went on and on. And it was then that my parents decided to make arrangements to leave the country. My grandparents, whom the late 70s and ill, refused to leave their home. They could not understand the urgency or the necessity of doing so. My grandparents passed away in 1938, just 11 days within each other. And soon thereafter, we received our necessary papers for our emigration to America. I was just four years old at that time. November 9th, 1938, 75 years ago this coming Saturday, Kristallnacht, or Crystal Night. It was the night of broken glass when the Nazis and their many followers smashed the windows and the storefronts of Jewish-owned stores. Jewish establishments, synagogues, and Jewish books were burned and destroyed. This was the beginning of a massive program against the Jews in Germany, a massive verbal and physical assault against all German Jews. In reality, this was the beginning of the Holocaust. On November 12th, following Kristallnacht, the German government actually fined the Jewish population for the damage caused that night. These imposed taxes were used to rearm Germany. The night of Kristallnacht, my father was taken away from our home and unbeknownst to my mother was sent to concentration camp Buchenwald in Germany. 
All sorts of terrible stories were related to my mother, and we did not know if we would ever see my father again. He was released after 10 days only because our papers were in order for our emigration to America. And to think that just a few years prior, he had been awarded the Iron Cross for his military service in the German army of World War I. We were forced to sell both our home and our business for a fraction of its worth. And soon thereafter, in January of 1939, we left for Holland from where we were to sail to the United States. And for almost nine months, while awaiting our quota number from the American State Department, my parents were assigned to take care of some 125 children. These young children had been sent by their parents from various parts of Europe to escape from the Nazis. In December of that year, 1939, we were deported to the detention camp of Westerbork in Holland to await our departure date to America. Camp Westerbork was constructed by the Dutch to accommodate Jews from various parts of Europe. In May of 1940, just one month before our planned departure date, the Germans invaded Holland and we were trapped. All of our belongings, which were about to be loaded on board ship, were burned and destroyed as the harbor of Rotterdam was bombed. Under Dutch control, Camp Westerbork was tolerable. My mother, father, brother, and I shared two small rooms. We all ate in a communal dining room, and at that time there was enough food for us so that we did not go hungry. Adults were assigned to various work duties. My father worked to repair shoes. My mother worked in the kitchen. We children had a makeshift education and lived a very dull, stagnant life. Several months later, when the Nazi SS took over the command of Westerbork, we became acquainted with the ever-present, terrifying 12-foot high barbed wire, and as thousands of Jews were rounded up, many taken from their hiding places, as was Anne Frank and her family, Camp Westerbork became overcrowded, and it was at that time that we had to share our small quarters with another family. And then the dreadful transports to the concentration and extermination camps in Eastern Europe began. This started in early 1942, and from then on, almost every Tuesday morning, men, women, and little ones were marched to a nearby railroad platform from where they were transported. This area became known as Boulevard de Misere. It was an area of complete misery. In January of 1944, it was our turn to be shipped out we children were actually glad for a change of environment. We were very naive, and we welcomed the move. We were allowed to take one knapsack each, and whatever we could stuff into it, we were permitted to take. When we approached the railroad platform and we saw the cattle cars in which we were to travel, our fears began to mount. Adults suspected, and they somehow knew what was in store for us. I remember that it was a bitter cold, 
pitch black, rainy night when we arrived at our destination, concentration camp Bergen-Belsen in Germany. We were pulled and dragged out of the cattle cars and greeted by the German guards <clears throat> who were shouting at us and threatening us with their rifles and with the most vicious attack dogs by their sides. I was a very frightened nine-year-old, and to this day, I still feel a certain sense of fear whenever I see a German shepherd. Bergen-Belsen was divided into various areas. It was sectioned off and surrounded by electrified barbed wire. Guards were always in strategically placed high guard towers, and in the evening, as soon as it would turn dark, the bright searchlights from above would constantly sweep the campgrounds. We were placed in a section that was known as the Sternlager, or the Star Camp, named so because we had to continue wearing that yellow star which had been issued to us back in Holland. Men were on one side of the camp, and the women on the other. And this did make it possible at times for families to get a glimpse of one another. 600 of us, 600 of our people were crammed into each of the crude, wooden, heatless barracks, meant for 100 when originally built. There were triple-decker bunk beds with two people sharing each bunk. The German winters were bitter cold and very long. We were given only one thin blanket per bunk and a straw-filled mattress, and this bunk was our only living quarters, and that for two people. I was very lucky that I was able to share a bunk with my mother and that my brother was able to share a bunk with our father. But can you imagine two adults, two strangers, sharing a bunk under such horrendous conditions, a bunk that was no larger than the small cut bed that we're all so familiar with. I remember the first time seeing a wagon filled with what I thought was firewood for the one small oven that we had in our barrack. That oven, of course, was never used. I soon realized that what was in the wagon were dead, naked bodies thrown one on top of the other. Toilets and so-called washing facilities were at a great distance. In the most primitive outhouses, toilets were long wooden benches with holes cut into them, one next to the other. There was no privacy. There was no toilet paper. There was no soap and hardly ever any water with which to wash. And in the almost year and a half that we were in Bergen-Belsen, never once were we able to brush our teeth. There were no trees, no flowers, nor did we ever see a blade of grass. And whenever it rained, we had to slush through the mud, adding even more misery to our already dismal existence. Every morning, every single morning, without fail, we were ordered to line up on a huge field. It was called an Appellplatz, five in a row as we were counted. We would have to stand there until each and every one of us was accounted for, often from early morning till late at night, without food, without water. No matter what the weather, without protective clothing, 
frostbite was common, we would treat our affected toes and fingers with the warmth of our own urine. Our diet consisted of a slice of bread a day, a pad of butter, some hot watery soup with grizzly meats and turnips and potato peel. The bread was later cut back and given to us just once a week and only if our so-called quarters were needed in order. Our birthday present to one another was that little piece of bread that we had saved up from the previous week. Once a month, we were marched to an area to shower, and there, under the watchful eyes of the guards, we were ordered to undress. We had heard about exterminations and gas chambers in other areas of Europe, and we therefore were never sure when the faucets were turned on as to what would come out, water or gas. The Nazis did their utmost to break us physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Unfortunately, they did succeed with many of our people. It was not uncommon for people who were no longer responsible for their actions to attempt escape, even though they knew that the chance to succeed was next to impossible. But they also felt that they had nothing more to lose. The failure of their attempts were obvious when we saw their lifeless bodies hanging electrocuted against the barbed wire. Malnutrition, dysentery, and the loss, <clears throat> the loss of the will to go on is what destroyed body and mind. Death was an everyday occurrence. The dark crowded quarters often caused us to trip and fall over the dead. Bodies could not be taken away fast enough. We as children saw things that no one, no matter what the age, should ever have to see. I know, of course, that you have all heard, you've read, the students here have studied, many of you have seen movies, perhaps even true documentaries about the Holocaust. But the constant foul odor, the filth, Continuous horror and fear surrounded by death is indescribable. There is no way that this can be put accurately into words or pictures. Our bodies, hair and clothes were infested with lice. We learned that there was a distinct difference between head lice and clothes lice. Squashing them between my thumbnails became my primary pastime. Much of my time was taken up with make-believe games, and one game, a game based on superstition, became very important to me. I decided that if I were to find four pebbles of about the same size and shape, that that would mean that the four members of my family would all survive. My mother, my father, my brother, and I. It was a torturous, painful, very difficult game to play. What if I couldn't find the third or fourth pebble? Might that mean that one or two of my family members would not pull through? Nevertheless, this game gave me something to hold on to, some distant hope. After a number of months on our meager diets, our stomach shrunk so that the hunger was no longer painful. Teenagers and men suffered most from malnutrition and were the first to die. Those who lasted the longest were the women, and mothers in particular. It was their strong will to keep their children alive 
that kept them going. And my mother was one of those remarkable ladies. There is no doubt in my mind that it was my mother's inner strength and fortitude that finally saw us through. One day, my mother was able to smuggle some potatoes and some salt from the kitchen where she worked, using an empty can as a pot and pieces from the wooden slat from our bunk as firewood, my mother somehow managed to cook some soup in secret. This was done on our bunk. I was on the bunk with her, trying to hide and shield what she was doing. Super simmering, just about finished, when the German guards entered our barrack for surprise inspection. In our rush to hide that setup, the boiling soup spilled on my leg. We had been taught self-discipline and self-control the hard way, for I knew for sure that if I had cried out, it would have cost us our lives. This happened in the spring of 1945. I was just 10 years old. The population in Camp Bergen-Belsen were dying off rapidly, but not nearly fast enough to satisfy the Nazis. Several weeks later, it was decided to send three trainloads of our people to Eastern Europe towards the extermination camps and the gas chambers. My family was among the 2,500 on the last of these three trains. It was April of 1945. The Russian army was closing in from the Northeast and the British and the Americans from the West. Under normal conditions, this train ride from Bergen-Belsen to whatever area of Eastern Europe they're going to send us would have taken no more than 10 hours. But because the Germans tried to evade the Allies, we were en route for two long weeks without food, without water, without medical supplies, without sanitary facilities, no toilets. Whenever the train came to a stop, those who were able and those who were strong enough were permitted to get out and take a drink from a nearby stream or dig up roots to eat. My mother remembered taking some sort of a pot and collecting water from the locomotive. And who knows what else that pot was used for. The need for water at that time was almost more important than food because of the severe dehydration due to the dysentery and the high fever due to the typhus. Let me briefly explain typhus. It is a highly contagious, deadly disease that's caused from filth and spread by lice. At the same time, while the train was at a standstill, the newly dead were taken off and buried along the tracks. In addition, our train was subject to frequent air attacks by the Allies. It is truly remarkable how any one of us was able to survive under such horrendous conditions. In fact, 500 of our people, that's one out of every five, died en route or shortly thereafter. My burned leg was severely infected and it was impossible to keep the wound clean or lice-free. In late April, after 14 days of this surreal and horrifying journey, the German guards stormed frantically through the train, demanding civilian clothing so that they would not be recognized by the Allies. And we knew then that the war was coming to an end. It was the Russian army that liberated our train and led us to a nearby farm village in eastern Germany. Most of the inhabitants had fled and we took over their homes. 
Kitchens were stocked with ample food. It was rich and good, actually much too good for our starved bodies. We could not tolerate that unfamiliar nourishment. And at that time, at the age of 10 and a half, I weighed 16 kilos, or as we know it here, 35 pounds. And my mother weighed a mere 60 pounds. The Russians, in their crude way, tried to help us the best that they could. I was brought to a nearby clinic for medical attention. My leg was in very bad condition, and I was close to losing it. Fortunately, it was decided to treat the wound, and I was very lucky that my leg responded to medication, and it gradually healed. As I regained my strength, I also relearned to walk. And in the interim, our heads were shaved because that was the only way that we could rid ourselves of head lice. Although we were all weak, ill, and thoroughly exhausted, I vividly remember the spring of 1945. The weather was beautiful, sunny and bright. Trees and grass were lush and green. Flowers were in bloom. The birds were singing. It was a wonderful, exciting feeling to be free at long last. We were all ill with typhus, but my father had to die from it. Six weeks after our liberation, and this after six and a half years of mental torment and physical abuse. My 12-year-old brother, Albert, actually helped bury our father. When I talk about those years, it is as though I am relating a nightmare, a very bad dream. I separate myself from it ever having happened to me, and that is how I deal with it. It is a wonderful story of how we gradually recuperated and were sent back to Holland to start our lives anew. My brother and I were eventually placed in a children's home in preparation to live in what was then still Palestine and we know today as Israel. Most of the children in this home survived alone without their parents. I felt like a total misfit. I needed to learn how to resettle into a normal society. Had no training for that. Here I was by this time, 11 years old, had never been in a store, had no idea what money was all about. I had almost no table manners. It was like learning to live all over again. It was in this home that we became reacquainted with life in its normal state. The meals served us were delicious and nourishing. And you can imagine that just about anything and everything tasted good to us. And though our surrogate parents provided a very strict environment, much love and care were given us. I began my first formal education at that time at the age of 11 and a half. We were taught the secular subjects, reading, writing, arithmetic, in a Montessori school where we progressed at our own pace. The Dutch language in which we were taught was all new to us. We also received a thorough education in Hebrew and in religious studies. The British, who were governing Palestine in the 1940s, had imposed a quota on the number of Jews permitted into the land, and they were intercepting many of the refugee ships and interning the survivors on the island of Cyprus. And in some cases, they actually turned the ships back to Europe. 
1947, just one year prior to Israel becoming a state, our illegal voyage from Haaland to Palestine was planned and danger once again loomed over us. And it was then that my mother managed to make arrangements for a family of three to emigrate to the United States. And thanks to the Holland America line, we were able to use the tickets which had been purchased 10 years earlier. We arrived in Hoboken, New Jersey, April 23rd, 1948. By coincidence, exactly three years to the day of our liberation. It was a Jewish relief organization, the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, that found a home for us in Peoria, Illinois. <laughs> Never heard of Illinois, certainly not Peoria. And there, at the age of 13, I once again started life anew in a strange land and again learning a new language, my third new language in less than three years. First Dutch, then Hebrew, and now English. And because of my inability to speak English, I, at the age of 13, was placed in the fourth grade with nine-year-olds. Although both my brother and I worked long hours after school to help our mom pay bills, I nevertheless found time, actually made time, to take extra courses during the year, attend summer school, and by working very hard in my studies, I was able to be graduated five years later at age 18 from Peoria Central High School, ranking eighth in the class of 267 students. <laughs> Hard work, very hard work. It was two months after high school graduation that I was married to Nathaniel Lazan, who I had met at the age of 16 in Peoria. And we are so fortunate to have celebrated our 60th wedding anniversary this past August. Nathaniel, where are you? Give, give away, where is he? No idea where he is. Okay, but he's there. Okay, but he's there someplace. Okay. I am grateful. I am I am very grateful that I survived healthy in body, mind, and spirit, and that together with my husband, I'm able to perpetuate my heritage with a wonderful family. We have three grown children. All three are happily married, and they've given us nine beautiful grandchildren and two absolutely magnificent, extraordinary, two great-grandchildren. And one of them was just a week old yesterday. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And in March of 1996, my memoir, Four Perfect Pebbles, co-authored by Lila Pearl, was published by Green Willow, Division of HarperCollins. It is now in its 25th printing in hardback, available in paperback by Avon and Scholastic Book Club, has been translated into German, into Dutch, and if you like, you may all read it in Japanese. <laughs> Maybe there's someone here who can do just that, but above all, I am so grateful that the story is in book form so that it can be passed on to future generations. 
And I'm thrilled that a documentary has been made entitled Marion's Triumph with the actress Deborah Messing as the narrator. It's been aired over PBS stations throughout the country this past several years, and we were just notified that this coming April, it once again will be aired over PBS stations. So you see that despite all the terrible things that happened to me as a child, my life today is full and rewarding. Before I answer some of your questions, I have a very important favor to ask of each and every one of you in this magnificent library, and I am so honored that it is so fully attended. Thank you for being here. Although I have spoken to upwards of one million students and adults over these past 20-some years, it still has not become easy. However, I do realize the importance of sharing that period of our history with you, simply because in a few short years, we will not be here any longer to give a first-hand account. Yours, the students here today, this evening, your generation is the last generation that will hear these stories firsthand. And I therefore ask you in particular to please share my story or any of the Holocaust stories that you read and hear about. Share them with your friends, share them with your relatives, and someday share them with your children. And yes, even with your grandchildren. When we are not here any longer, it is you who will have to bear witness. As difficult as it is, the horror of the Holocaust must be taught, must be studied, and kept alive. Only then can we guard it from ever happening again. This, this is the very yellow star that I was forced to wear. It says Jude, which in German means Jew. It was just another way to denigrate us and to isolate us and to set us apart from the rest of society. This represents a star of David, a beautiful, meaningful Jewish symbol. <clears throat> but the Nazis made it so very ugly. Each of us, each and every one of us must do everything in our power to prevent such hatred, such destruction, and such terror from reoccurring. And we can begin by having love, respect, and tolerance towards one another, regardless of the religious belief, regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of the national origin. This respect towards one another must begin in our homes around the kitchen table, the dining room table, wherever we gather as a family. We, the adults, must pass it on our places of business. You, the students, in your classrooms, in the halls of your schools, in the communities, the towns, the cities, and only if there's respect and tolerance towards one another in the countries can we expect to have peace in the world. We must begin with our children. Let us treat people as individuals. Let us look for similarities 
and respect the differences. Let us build bridges and reach out to one another. And we must be true to ourselves and not blindly follow a leader without thinking ahead and searching our hearts and our minds as to what the consequences might be. As I tell the students, it is not cool to follow just anyone's lead without first checking to see what his or her true intentions are. Please, please remember these messages. Share them with your friends who are unable to be here this evening. Share them, remember them, but above all, let us all live by them. We're all aware, or we should be, that six million Jewish people were murdered during the Holocaust of the Second World War. The population of your state of Kentucky is approximately four and a half million. Can you possibly imagine the entire population of the state of Kentucky wiped out, plus another million and a half? The six million also represent one-third of the entire pre-World War II Jewish population. Among them were one and a half million children, children just like the ones who are here this evening. We also need to remember that there were five million non-Jews who lost their lives. Among them were the righteous Gentiles, as we refer to them, very special people, non-Jews who jeopardized their lives to save Jewish families. They would hide them in their attics, they would hide them in the basements, farmers would hide them out in the barns. They were hidden in convents. And when these good people were caught doing what they felt was the right thing to do, they also were deported to concentration camps and in many cases lost their lives. And that brings me to another message. We must never generalize and judge an entire group by the actions of some within that group. These are all universal messages, messages that each and every one of us is familiar with to varying degrees, but need to be reminded of over and over again. And this certainly was a good opportunity to do so. These messages are the lessons learned from that dark period of our history and certainly apply to today's world situation and definitely to our own individual lives. By listening, I hope that our young people prevent our past from becoming their future. The fact that you are all here this evening, and you really didn't have to be here this evening, right? This morning, I was at the Davis County High School. Those 950-some students had no choice but to be there. And by the way, they were extraordinarily wonderful, responsive, and receptive. Amazing audience. Yesterday, we were, Amy, give me a hand. Yesterday, we were in um, Burns Middle School. The day before, we were in Amy's school, the Owensboro Middle School, and tomorrow we'll be elsewhere, and so on and so forth. Anyway, they had no choice to be there, but you did have a choice. You didn't have to be here this evening, but the fact that you are here is an indication that you are concerned and involved individuals. And with that in mind, I would like to share the following quote with you.
A quote by the British states, states, statesman and philosopher Edmund Burke. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Please, please stay involved with worthwhile causes. This coming Monday, we commemorate Veterans Day. Please let us all honor our men and women who have served and who continue to serve our country to protect our freedom and our way of life. I now would like to share something with you. There are a few more seats here, and there's an empty one right over there. So come, somebody sit down, and you can sit here if you like. And you, right over there, young lady, come sit over here. That, that bothers me. I need to see your face. Okay? <laughs> come sit right here. That's much better. Okay. Thank you. Okay. This was my mom at 104th birthday. An amazing. Sadly, sadly, mom passed away last December, just six weeks short of 105. An amazing, beautiful lady inside and out. She took one medication for high blood pressure. I decided long ago that Tylenol is not a medication. Okay. <laughs> Let me. One minute, we have to put mom right here. One second, time out. How is that? Yes, perfect, okay. Amazing lady. When we are home, and home for us is the South Shore of Long Island in New York, we used to see my mom all the time. She lived in her own apartment only 20 minutes from us. Um, did I mention Long Island, New York? That's where we live? Yeah, oh, I did that, okay. Um, and when we traveled, and oh my goodness, do we travel. Last week this time, we were in Ohio, Bowling Green University and all other universities. Week before Connecticut, week before that in Illinois. Week from Sunday, we're off to Joplin, Missouri. We slept a lot. And when we traveled, we used to speak to my mom several times a day. And that reminds me that you, the students here, you guys also need to check in with your moms and your dads. Always tell them where you're going and be sure you tell them when you'll be back. They need to know that and you guys owe it to them, right? Right, okay. My, my brother deals with this altogether differently than I do. He will not talk about it as freely as you heard it from me this evening. Lives in California, is happily married, but by choice will not bring children into this world. Has a very difficult time with organized religion. All of that makes me very sad, but I do not fault Albert. We have to remember he's two years older than I am, was with my father in the men's section, and I am convinced that he saw and experienced things that I did not. God puts us on this earth, gives us a beautiful mind. It is this mind that allows us to choose right from wrong, good from evil. We are capable of making choices. Therefore, men did this to one another. But did he have to make it so bitterly cold when we were standing out there on the pell all day? 
I have a direct line. I ask loads and loads of questions. Don't get too many answers, but that is okay. Faith I will always have. After all, here I am, three children, nine grandchildren, two great-grandchildren from whom generations will be forthcoming. He made sure that enough of us survived so that we will always be here. I am proud of my faith, as I'm certain you are proud of your faith and of your heritage. But please, please, let us all remember to respect the right of others to their belief. Be kind and good and respectful and tolerant towards one another. That is the basis for peace. Had there been respect and tolerance towards one another some 60, 70 years ago, I would not be here this evening to share that dark period of our history with you. 9-11 would not have occurred. Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, North Korea, all these countries that are in such turmoil would be peaceful countries for its people. Be kind and good and respectful towards one another, please. It is such a simple message and yet so difficult to achieve. There is very little that we can do against the negativity in our world, but how we treat, behave, and reach out towards one another, that is entirely up to us. Did I ever find my four pebbles? Frequently asked question. I always found my four pebbles. I made it my business to find them. I cheated all the time. <laughs> when, when I found them, I put them in a safe place. Next time I would search for them and I couldn't find the third one or that fourth one, well, I knew exactly where to go and pick them up. Maybe that was cheating, but it was my game. And guess who made those rules? <laughs> you need to know that I was only about nine or 10 years old when things were at its absolute worst. We had nothing, nothing to occupy our time with constructively. No paper, no pencils, no books, no games. So I was lucky as such an imaginative mind, and my imaginative games were always based on a positive attitude. I would search for a piece of glass or a piece of a mirror, whatever I could find on the dirt ground in Bergen-Belsen. And when the sun would shine, that little piece of glass would cast a reflection onto the ground. And that little wiggly reflection, it became my pet. As long as the sun would shine, I would have my pet, and my pet would never, ever die. I would also imagine that one day I once again <clears throat> would have my three Bs. And these three Bs represent our everyday comforts and necessities that we all take so much for granted. First B represented a bed. I knew that someday I once again would have my very own bed with a real mattress, clean sheets, and enough blankets to keep me warm. Second B represented a bath, warm water, soap, clean towel, and with that would come toothpaste and a toothbrush, of course. And the third B was bread. I knew that someday I once again would have enough bread so that I would never again go hungry. These imaginative games, if you will, they were my survival techniques. They were my survival skills. Do you know that we all have survival techniques and skills within us? When the need arises, we just have to search for them, find them, and be sure that we put them to work. No one, no one is spared adversity. No one is spared hardship. We all have to overcome obstacles at one time or another. 
but with perseverance, with determination, with faith, and above all hope, one can overcome just about anything and everything. Above all, don't ever, ever give up hope. It is not so much what happens to a person, it is how we deal with the situation that makes the difference. Okay, hmm. Nathaniel. Where were you, Nathaniel? I do, at least wave so I can see where you are. Yes, is he here altogether? I don't know. Okay, anyway, Nathaniel's from New York. That's my husband. He's, from, he's back there. Ay, ay, ay. Hi there. Okay, okay. Nathaniel's from New York. He went to Bradley University in Peoria. Lucky me. He went home on vacations, and way back then in the 1950s, long-distance telephone calls were very expensive. There were no computers, no emails, but for a three-cent stamp, and there really was such a thing as a three-cent stamp, you would write to one another every single day. Major problem, hi Nathaniel, major problem. <laughs> In his letters to me, he would add five words that he asked me to define and put into a sentence. That's a lot of nerve with all I had to do. But I knew he meant to help me with my English, and I guess it did work, so I thank you, Nathaniel. <laughs> I, on the other hand, would write my letters with, in rough draft with a dictionary by my side, and only when I was satisfied with the way the letter was written would I dare mail it to him talking about a dictionary. My father always carried a little chunky German-English dictionary with him, and he would study the vocabulary in secret whenever possible, always with the hope that someday he would reach America. When we came to the United States back in 1948 and approached New York Harbor, we were told the night before that if we wanted to see the Statue of Liberty, we needed to be on deck bright and early the next morning. Well, you can be sure that each and every one of us was on deck to greet and be greeted by that magnificent symbol of freedom, the freedom that had been denied us for so many years. And to this day, when we cross the Verrazano Bridge, Kentucky may need an explanation. The Verrazano Bridge is a long bridge in New York that connects the borough of Staten Island with that of Brooklyn. And when we reach a certain point on that bridge, I will always crane my neck to see the Statue of Liberty. It is the most beautiful, meaningful, magnificent sight. Next time when you're in the big city of New York, try to make the time to visit the Statue of Liberty. Do I still speak those languages? Ik spreek een klein beetje Hollands. I speak a little bit of Dutch. I speak some Hebrew. Ich spreche ein sehr gutes Deutsch, speak an excellent German, and I do speak some English. <laughs> we returned to Germany, or I returned to Germany on six separate occasions. The first time it was back in 1995, it was the 50th anniversary of our liberation. I returned reluctantly, but decided to join a group out of Israel. We visited my father's grave, and the reason my father and about 60 others have a private resting place in that farm village where we were liberated was because they died after some of the chaos had subsided. Those who died early on were all buried in mass graves. 
We also went to Bergen-Belsen, and Bergen-Belsen looks nothing the way I remembered it. Had been burned down under the direction of President Eisenhower, who was then the commander of the Allied forces, because the conditions of the camp would have created tremendous health hazards for that entire region of Germany. So today, other than the newly built documentation and exhibition centers, Bergen-Belsen looks like a park. Green grass, shrubs, trees, not bad looking at all, except for the mounds everywhere, mounds with plaques that read, here lie a thousand, here lie 2,500. These are the mass graves of our people. We also went to my former hometown of Hoya, near Hanover, and there we were greeted by public officials who over and over again apologized for what was done to our people. And then there was a non-Jewish couple, Heike and Hans Hut, born after the war, who took us to the Jewish cemetery, which was in terrible disarray, had not been cared for since 1938. And they took us to our family plot. And there, among the toppled over stones, was a brand new shiny granite footstone with the inscription, Zur Erinnerung an die zerstörte Grabstelle der Familie Blumenthal, Hoya 1894-1938. In memory of the desecrated plot of the Blumenthal family, Hoya 1894-1938, placed there by this non-Jewish young couple, unbeknownst to us, a most beautiful, generous, kind gesture. And believe me, I never thought that I would refer to non-Jewish Germans in such glowing terms. It's people like these that renew one's faith in humanity and that become wonderful, dear, dear friends of ours. Actually traveled to New York about five years ago to share mom's 100th birthday celebration. Now, no one in their right mind will travel from Europe to New York for four days in February to sightsee. <laughs> I mean, amazing, amazing people. <clears throat> and each time we've gone back five more times, I speak in schools and universities and churches, and I do so in German. And it's tremendously well-received, but also very, very difficult for the younger generation. After all, it happened in their country, by their own people, by their grandparents' and great-grandparents' generation. It's a huge burden for them. And unfortunately, it will be their burden for generations to come. The last time we returned was just about three years ago this month. Why? Because a brand new public high school in my former hometown was named in my honor. So now we have the Marion Blumenthal Hauptschule in Hoya. An amazing celebration. Classmen, musicians, fine food and tremendously courageous of this little town to redress what happened so many years ago. Um, the night before, we commemorated Crystal Night on the site where our synagogue once stood. It was a tremendous few days and uh, most difficult, but also very gratifying and rewarding. Okay, I have a website. Now, you have to bear with me. I'm really, Amy knows, I'm very bad with, with computer stuff. Okay, but I do have a website. It's simply fourperfectpebbles.com. F-O-U-R spelled out. Okay, so far, so good. Now, it has a, a front page of, 
home page. It has a home, Nathaniel, Nathaniel is the computer guy. I, I don't do any of that. Okay, it has a front home page, and on that home page is a red dot. It's called an icon. And, and, and if you press that, you will find a, a YouTube video thing uh, <laughs> pertaining to the naming of the school. It's in German, it has English subtitles. Check it out, you'll find it interesting. Okay, now, I know there's something else cooking. Ah, I have a Facebook. Okay, <laughs> I, I have a Facebook. So you guys have a Facebook too, I'm sure. So you do with it whatever you need to do with it, right? <laughs> but to be serious once again, please, please use this wonderful technology for good only. Do not disparage others. Do not embarrass others. Do not intimidate others. Be kind and good and respectful towards one another, please. If you don't remember anything else from this evening's presentation but this one message, to be kind and good towards one another, it'll have been worth your while to be here for almost an hour. Sit on the floors or stand. Please be kind and good towards one another. September 11th, 2001. None of us, none of us will ever be allowed to forget that date as long as we live. At that time, Nathaniel and I were in Florida visiting children and grandchildren. And because all planes were grounded, we chose to drive home. And as we approached New York, it was on a Thursday, September 13th, and crossed that Verrazano Bridge that I mentioned earlier, amidst the smoking ruins of the Twin Towers, we could see the Statue of Liberty holding high the torch of freedom. It is that flame of freedom that the terrorists sought to destroy. But they could not, and they never will because we will take good care of our freedom. We will safeguard our freedom. We will not and must not take our freedom for granted. Let us all, each and every one of us, redouble our efforts to be kind and good and respectful towards one another. And with that, I wish each and every one of you here in Owensbury your children, your grandchildren, and all succeeding generations, a healthy, happy, productive future in a world of love and peace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you were a wonderful audience. Okay, now I need two more minutes of your time. Okay, you can sit, you can stand, whatever you like to do. Two more minutes, I need to share a song with you. Not to worry, I will not sing. But it's the title song, who's gonna push the button? It's a title song of a musical, Four Perfect Pebbles, written by John Hall from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it's sung back then, about 10 years ago, by an 11-year-old girl by the name of Lyric. Listen to the lyrics, listen to the words. You'll find them very meaningful and, and quite beautiful. Just two minutes of your time, please.
Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Mr. Jim, thank you. And Leslie, thank you. Thank you.